Welcome to the Curiosity Club podcast, here to reschool us all in the things that really matter. I'm your host, founder of the Curiosity Club and certified life coach, Katri Barrett. Each episode, I speak to special guests asking the awkward and important questions so you don't have to. Each season, we focus on diving into a topic from our curious curriculum self, mental health, sex, relationships, work, money, and a whole lot more. This is the podcast where we have the conversations needed to remove the shame, stigma, and feel less alone in the experiences that we all have in common. Are you curious? Pull up a chair and join us. Welcome to season six, episode three. And for this week's episode, I recently sat down with the marvellous Charlotte Moore, a Manchester-based journalist and poet usually found writing about mental health, sex and LGBTQ plus issues. Charlotte was the first person that I actually reached out to when I had the vision of growing the Curiosity Club podcast into the online school that it is becoming today. Helping me out as the digital editor when we first launched, she has been paramount in helping me realise my dream of creating a platform that shares real person stories of the everyday challenges that we all share in the aim to help remove any stigma and shame and so that no one feels alone in their experiences. If you haven't yet checked out the Curiosity Club's essays or revision section of our website yet, then I highly recommend going and having a browse. We've built up quite the library of resources and stories now, with new ones added each and every week. And there really is something relatable for everyone. And as always, if there is a topic that you'd like us to explore in an essay or in any of our content, then please do reach out to me or one of the team on hello at thecuriosityclub.co.uk. Charlotte and I talked about using writing as a form of self-discovery and how it all started for her from writing fan fiction. We unpacked the downfalls of how we're taught poetry and literature at school and what a more empowering curriculum might look like. And Charlotte also shares her top tips for any aspiring writers out there. We also touch upon the failings of sex education, especially for the LGBTQ community, as well as personal violence and what would have been useful for us to have been taught in school. Something that we just weren't taught anything about is money. Charlotte shares her experience of getting into debt, payday loans, and how she kind of managed to overcome that and the impact that it had. We'd love to hear your biggest takeaways from this episode and be sure to follow and subscribe to the Curiosity Club podcast if you aren't so already enjoy hi charlotte welcome to the curiosity club podcast how are you doing today i'm good how are you i'm very well i'm very excited to talk to you in this capacity for for the listeners to know that charlotte i have worked with uh, charlotte has helped me get the curiosity club to where it is now with her word wizardry and (laughs) all your amazing copywriting (laughs) no it was really nice obviously i jumped on um at the really really early stages where um, we were still kind of figuring out exactly who the Curiosity Club was for. So it's been it's been so nice to like look back and see it now. It's done so well. You must be really chuffed. I am. Well, you have you helped me form from obviously the Curiosity Club's been here as a podcast, so which is nice. I think it's really nice to sort of full circle having you on at the get as a guest oh. of the podcast. Because <laughs> that's where we started. And you you were such a fundamental part of helping me take my vision of you know visions many different things and helping me like convey that messaging and putting it into the brand which now the curiosity club is sort of evolving into so now it's it's very very exciting oh you angel no I'm super excited to be like having an actor on it because obviously well you know I listen to the podcast so can be weird to hear my own voice on it (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, that always is. I still get used to hearing my own voice on it. So yeah, I could feel that. Well, why don't you start by telling everyone a little bit more about you? Because you have you wear various different different hats and just sort of talking a little bit about what you do and also what led you to where you are today. Sure. Um, so hi, I'm Charlotte. I'm a journalist and a copywriter based in, uh, if you can't tell by my accent, Manchester. Um, I've been writing pretty much since I could hold a pen. Um, my first job, my first proper job anyway, I went to the Chalet Girl out in France um, and I did some resort reference stuff. I moved back to the UK with no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and I tried recruitment, was not a very good recruiter. Um, in fact, I was, I was the worst recruiter. I was pretty much fired within three weeks. I was terrible at my job. Um, but I, I did really enjoy looking at their website and the kind of copywriting side of it. So really pushed myself to start learning more about copywriting. I've read books over the weekend. I did online courses. I did courses at the library and stuff. Um, and then I landed kind of my first copywriter job and it, it, it's gone from there. I went freelance about two years ago and that was at a point where I really wanted to kind of start dabbling more in media um, and kind of more article writing, long form writing. Um, and I joined the team over at Restless Network as a digital editor. I was the digital editor there for a year and a half, just under two years. Um, and I'm now a freelance journalist and writer. So I do some freelance editing, freelance writing and freelance copy. So the golden trio, really. <laughs> All of the different things. Though, and you are so, so good at what you do, taking kind of your view of the world and putting it into words, which for me, I always, I admire that so much in people, which is exactly why I reached out to you to help me kind of formulate my, my the, the brand of, of the Curiosity Club. Would you say how much has your writing over the way that it's evolved since you, that time at school and all the different forms it's taken like how has that kind of helped you on your kind of journey of discovering who you are that's a bit of a that's quite a big question oh, no. Seriously, like I feel um my writing get probably back when I was like 15 16 um I think for some people it's really hard to track their kind of writing progression from the ages of like 14 to 15 um, but I'm really lucky in some ways. Most people know this about me because actually I've now written like three articles. It's not a terrible secret anymore. Um, but I used to I used to write loads of fan fiction all the way through my teenage years. And you can look back, um, which is kind of one of the really nice things about it. You can look back and I can see my first work from like 2008 all the way to I think the last piece published was in 2018. Um, and it's really interesting to see how much I've changed as a writer, kind of um, the less I kind of rely on like dangling sentences and like odd word choices, really blocky dialogue um, and kind of how that kind of evolved for me was always really interesting. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, I didn't go to university. I didn't study sort of English and stuff. So um, I think when it comes to writing, I've like joked that um, I kind of learned through fan fiction a lot, um, which is really funny when you think about it. But my um, my kind of first endeavouring to fan fiction was uh, doing something called beta reading which to the general public is just editing um, and I'd start editing stories that were sort of 300,000 words so you're talking a sort of full page novel um, of editing and and that was kind of where I got a lot of my editing skills from I learned about how to give feedback how to structure and how to kind of say well this this needs to go here this story needs to go here do you really think that character would have that motivation kind of what's the underlying through line for 
this story you know what, what's kind of the message that's conveying how are you setting the scene like you're not showing the reader you're telling them kind of um and really pushing on those points and it's really funny because I always think kind of dabbling that fiction side of things has has always really informed the way that I edit articles now I always treat them like stories um which is at the heart of it is is what all good writing all good copy you know whether you're doing an advert or a um a kind of long form blog post you know you should be treating them like a story they are stories at the heart of it um and people like good stories um and I think kind of using using that kind of really focus on narrative has really informed that for me. Mm, I, I totally agree. And I think when we working together in the Charistic Club, that, that storytelling part was a huge part of it. Because I think the power of stories and the different forms, and I like that you said that everything, that whether it's um, an article by a journalist or whether it is fan fiction or whether it, you know, things like Instagram captions or things like that. I think that storytelling, it, it helps share ideas and perspectives or helps shift perspectives. And I think that's what I love about, about storytelling, whether it's in the written form or whether it's podcast or in your, what you're fantastic about as well, which you haven't mentioned yet, is your poetry. <laughs> I always find that no matter what you write, whether it's poetry or whether it's um, kind of long form stuff, I find that there's kind of two qualities that good writers tend to really share. Um, and that's kind of one, they'll read a lot. And two, they can tell a good story at the pub. <laughs> and I think those are the two kind of most important qualities for me when it comes to being like a good writer. Um, but again, I mean, we're going on to this in a sec, but I think the way that we perceive poetry is this very elevated concept. When it's, it, again, it's just a story, um, just a different form of telling one. Mm, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, as you said, I know that's one of your points later. We will unpack it a little <laughs> bit more. But yeah, the power of just sort of shifting shifting perspectives through storytelling. I, I absolutely love that. And I suppose we're going to be doing that a little bit now. We're by coming back and or coming on to your first point of one of the things that you wish that you'd been taught in school. Um, I know that this is, yeah, tell us a little bit around, around that rather. I won't intro it. I'll let you tell us. Sure. So I think, um, and this is obviously a very niche point, but I think the way that we treat literature and poetry um, from a schooling age is is kind of inherently wrong. Um, and there's two things I really think about that. Um, and I'm definitely going to be absolutely hated for both these points. But um, a journalist called Rebecca Reed um, talked about them a few years ago. And I think she's right. Um, in terms of relevancy, I guess, when we think about um, kind of books, we tend to lean on classics. Um, in a school sort of setting and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing you know of mice and men still a super compelling story today um I personally love the great Gatsby I really enjoy Charles Dickens um and I think a lot of those kind of uh traditional books do make up a really good formation for having an understanding of the fact that literature and books and stories in themselves are generally timeless um there is something really really lovely about that however I will say that I think the programme, the curriculum that we had in schools are, are potentially different now. Um, but back when I was of school age, every single writer was male and white. Um, they tended to come from a well-educated background. You know, there were very few uh, exciting kind of female writers. And I think it's because so much of the curriculum relies on Shakespeare, who I understand is a cornerstone of British literature and a cornerstone of, of playwriting. But it's funny because I think 
a lot of the values of Shakespearean stories have been retold in far more interesting ways. You know, more people will be able to tell you more about She's the Man, the film with Amanda Bynes, than they will necessarily about the Shakespearean play that it's based off. And I, I, I actually think inherently that that's kind of wrong. I think we really push young people um, in a way that isn't necessarily positive for them to enjoy this very classic literature that kind of feels a bit distant and often quite challenging for them to get their head around. When in actual fact, you know, if we've done something like perhaps Margaret Atwood um, or, you know, some some more kind of modern classics, even um, something like normal people, like think of the discussion points that those would highlight, consent, sex, positivity. Um, it, it, it would highlight classism, the challenges, dystopian societies, why dystopian books are really interesting. Um, and I think we are missing a trick and it goes to the same with poetry. I think the way that we teach poetry is really, really wrong. <laughs> I think um, in school, poetry is taught to be kind of torn apart and deconstructed to the point where um, we're kind of using it as, as just kind of this um, medium for analogies, essentially. And uh, I think it's a really boring way to read poetry. Most people don't read poetry line by line and go back and say, well, what was the relevancy of that first line? And I remember me reading, uh, it was a Simon Armitage poem called Mother Any Distance. And I loved that poem prior to reading it in school. And it's still, it's still a poem that I really love. But tearing that poem apart kind of took some of the magic of it from me. Um, and I think the problem is prior to kind of someone deconstructing that entire poem, I had a fairly good idea of what the meaning was. You know, I understood that it was kind of this um, almost love story of moving out, this empty nest, this kind of, will I fly on my own? Am I going to be successful? Um, the kind of anchor kite analogy, which I absolutely love. Um, but kind of prior to a teacher setting it and tearing it apart, I understood that. I don't know why we don't talk about poetry more in terms of overall themes and overall messages rather than dissecting it almost line by line, which I, I think is a really interesting way to deconstruct poetry, perhaps of your university age and your kind of making a very conscious choice to read poetry in that way. I think in high school though, and especially in primary school, we should be looking at poetry for something that's not intimidating, a kind of lovely way to write um, kind of concise messages, writing prose and, and kind of encourage almost the lyrical value of it. Mm, mm, no, no, I really, really agree with what you're saying. It's just really, I've not, so I've not really thought about it like that being not kind of a writer and it'd be my my craft as it is yours but it's so true and I definitely feel like my experience of English literature um from school has made me feel like oh well it's not for me it's not or or the, because of the books that we studied and the, the sort of classics as you as you said I very very much at the time found it so them so boring and so difficult to read that I was like, oh it's not for me English literature isn't for me and then I and then similarly you know with English language I was like oh just because I find it it's boring well, I would say, English language I, again is another one that I think that we ruined you know grammar and the joy of it is I always think grammar is more of an art than a science um it's something that contextually can change depending on sentences you know I've read I've read a really interesting piece by Evie Murr who's an amazing journalist um and anyone listening you should really read her work she's fabulous but she did a kind of piece of prose that was an entire article without any punctuation um to kind of demonstrate this this endless flow of kind of almost intrusive thoughts and it was a really, really beautiful piece of work. Um, and I think that 
the problem is that we teach grammar in such a way that it's almost intimidating for people. And I often find that really brilliant writers find themselves weeping over a missed full stop. And I always think grammar is so easy to fix. You know, as an editor, someone said, um, oh, I've got this article, but I'm perhaps dyslexic. I really struggle with grammar. I'm not a great speller. That's no problem. That I can correct. But I, I think the thing that you can't correct is an ability to tell stories. You know, if you, if you don't kind of have um, that ability to empathise with an audience, to really find something beautiful um, in a piece of work, that's where you're going to struggle. You know, that's the hard part to teach. Um, but I think because we put so much weight on grammar and ability to spell, which essentially is just remembering some rules and they're things that can be quite easily learned and relearn. Um, and there's, there's ways around them, you know, so many tools that can support you now. I just think that people get intimidated to write. Um, and like you've talked about, it's this idea of perfectionism, you know, oh, I don't want to do it because I might not do it well enough and I, I might not have great grammar. Um, they always find that people apologize for it when they send me their work. Um, and even people with dyslexia are like, I'm so, so sorry. This is so awful for you. Um, and I'm always like, I, why? This is, this is the easiest thing to fix ever. You have made my job infinitely easier. Fixing typos, I can do. <laughs> um, telling you how to kind of describe a situation that was very stressful in a way that's interesting and unique, I can't. Mm. Mm, no I, th I think it's so important to like talk about that more and, and really interesting as you're saying and actually this, this is the second time even in this series that 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 conversation around dyslexia as in particular has come up and because um, Ben and Ben Peachy and I were talking about it and, and their journey with struggling at school and not feeling that that they were able to do something because they were kind of told what you're doing is wrong and how that and, and the fact that Ben's got a book deal now like I just love that I love that I would also like to add that I edited Ben's work for at least a year and Ben is a fabulous fabulous writer just one of the most it's, it's one of those um you get a piece in your inbox and sometimes it's one that you almost really want to read instantly and then as soon as you read that first line something really punchy and unique it just draws you straight in um and Ben is one of those people who I feel like I could just listen to for hours yeah. <laughs> there's something about their work that's just so almost enchanting <laughs> they've got really, really incredible abilities to just tell these like funny and interesting and vulnerable stories just incredible incredible and, and that is and I think Ben is just such a wonderful example of someone who has had that label of dyslexic put on them at school age and actually that doesn't mean that you can't that writing or English or any of those things are not accessible to you and I think it's about if at school as you were sort of saying we were shown different ways of expressing ourselves and I think that obviously would come into relating it to English and English literature like relating to writers or finding ways of expressing ourselves through poetry without worrying about you know what whether it's iambic pentameter or I mean what whatever that what's that called the rhythmic I can't even remember that but I just remembered that <laughs> phrase <laughs> the different things like not worrying about that and and that like um stifling your creative like outlet in that way yeah a hundred percent um and I think it is um it is really interesting um yeah I think it's tricky because I think poetic forms are interesting um touching on the iambic pentameter point um I do really like kind of metric lines in poetry 
Um, and I do think that sometimes um, there's almost this thing where you see poetry and you're like, oh, someone's sort of thrown that together. And often there's, there's quite a bit more thought in there that goes in behind it um, with kind of creating a rhythm and with kind of creating a sense of rhythm. But I think we should, um, we should be encouraging that. And I think the biggest way to kind of learn that sense of rhythm is kind of saying things to yourself out loud and kind of hearing other people perform poetry is, is probably the best way to do it. You know, if you see someone perform poetry versus you reading it, it's such a different experience. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things of taking kids to see sort of NAF plays and Othello Macbeth. And I, I wonder how different the landscape or kind of culture would look if we were kind of taking children to poetry slams and encouraging them to kind of get more involved in some of these things. Mm. And even and also just to the confidence of being able to reading, because I think so many people struggle with either reading their work out loud, but especially at school, which then translates as you get older to you know, doing a presentation at work or pitching an idea. And I think if you can find those more playful ways when we were younger and encourage that, which doing those sort of things would, I think it, it, the transferable mm skill of that and just and just the confidence then to hold or share your ideas through that creative outlet I think would be so beneficial yeah no 100% for anyone that sort of maybe is listening think, oh I, I maybe was put off from writing or reading even at school what would you kind of recommend in terms of like what what's helped you if someone kind of wants to express themselves through writing or learn to write or just write more what would be your tips for them so there's a couple of different things. I think there is a book called The Artist's Way um, that is really positive for getting you back into the habit of writing, which just encourages you to write for 10 minutes a day. Um, and I also used to laugh when I lived in London, I would note down bits of dialogue that I heard people saying to each other on the tube and in coffee shops, you know, as a freelancer and even before that as a copywriter, I spent a lot of time working on my own. Um, so overhearing conversations was kind of the only enjoyment always past the time that I had I used to have this list of like pages and pages of like random bits of dialogue that I just thought were like funny or interesting or something that kind of caught my eye um, and I think starting with something small like that is a really good way to kind of get yourself started um, the best advice though is read I don't know any good writers that don't read a lot um, and by a lot I mean a lot um, and I don't think you have to start by reading loads but I think kind of encouraging yourself to read articles every now and again, you know, we've got so much absolutely incredible accessible media. If you go and geld, um, almost everything you see on that site will be just mind blowing. <laughs> I've never, I've never read about an article on there. Um, Cosmo UK is another one. You know, I think some people think of Cosmo as this kind of very uh, fluffy female girls mag um, when actually Cosmo UK is, is really, really interesting. Um, a really interesting product you know Katie who heads up the features team there has really pushed for these really interesting investigations you know they did a, an amazing piece on conversion therapy and selling sex on eBay and some of their articles are just like oh wow um you know you finish them you're like oh I really enjoyed that um or even just kind of get engaged with it on Instagram um so Holly McNish who is one of my favorite poets performs on Instagram all the time um, and you can just watch her perform live from the comfort of your sofa um, which is a great way to do it and also audiobooks um, I think audiobooks I've talked about them a lot um, but I think audiobooks are 
a really accessible way to kind of get yourself into writing and into these conversations around writing. Mm, and hearing, I suppose, hearing how someone read their work, which is obviously with the with the audiobook as well as reading it and sort of getting into the, because it shows the rhythm of writing and it, and it sparks different ideas in different ways. I'm such a fan of audio audiobooks, always, always have been, obviously podcasts, I, similarly. <laughs> no, a- I love them. I have them on in the background all the time while I'm working and uh, no one else seems to get it, but I love hearing dialogue while I work. Um, it's something that I always think that really sparks like, the odd word or like sentence that um yeah I I love having dialogue in the background I used to um have Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares on because um I weirdly found it really relaxing and all my colleagues used to make fun of me (laughs) I used to have like the headphones on and I just have the dialogue playing (laughs) a random one I like that one today (laughs) really odd but I think you know whatever whatever helps you write (laughs) Exactly. So, Richard, yeah, reading, get, making sure that you're consuming a lot and then learning ways to convey and whether that's through reading, whether that's through listening. But no, thank you. I think those are, those, those are helpful tips. And of course, we've now building our a fantastic body of writers and essays and revision on, on the Curiosity Club um, website at thecuriouscub.co.uk. A little plug. We can always plug that in there. <laughs> exactly. I can't read some articles. Exactly, exactly. So let's move on to your second point then. And I think this is around lessons that you wish you learned around sex education or what was missing when you were at school. Yes. Um, So sex education is a big one for me. Um, I consider myself to be very sex positive. Um, I talk about sex a lot Um, on my Instagram. I talk about sex a lot in my journalism. I've covered a load of different sex topics and I love talking about it. Um, I think it's one of those things that um, some people are a little bit maybe squeamish about, but I'm not at all. I've always talked to my friends about sex um, and I've had kind of a very open relationship with my friends um, in that sense. Since I was like 15, we've always been like, oh my God, did you get fingered? Like, that sounds awful. Like, who's done this? Um, So I, I feel like I had quite a good background of knowledge through my friends um as opposed to kind of anything traditional um and I feel like sex education um especially back in like 2009 to 2012 um kind of failed us in a number of different ways um so there was a study recently that found that something like 30 percent of men and this is an exact quote please don't quote me on this it's something akin to this I think it was 30 percent of men assumed that women lost three pints of blood <laughs> during their period um I remember sitting there and thinking, firstly, that's insane. And secondly, well, actually, I suppose, what grounds do they have? Because unless you've got a sister who is willing to talk to you about that, or I guess a a parent that's willing to talk to you about that, where are you going to get that knowledge from? Especially when in sex education, we're so keen to split men and women um, and young people up um, and kind of divide them in forms of gender when a lot of them don't even identify as any gender, you know, they might be non-binary. And I think that the way we do sex education is really, really outdated. You know, we, we want men to understand how periods work. <laughs> I don't know, I, I don't know who's ever struggled because they've had more knowledge. <laughs> um, and I also think that, you know, men should understand about pregnancy. They should understand more about safe sex rather than directing all of that on women because it kind of continues this conversation that women are inherently responsible for everything that precludes sort of sex. Um, and I think that in itself is a really, really big challenge. Um, and the other thing that obviously I'm particularly passionate about 
is education around uh, young LGBTQ people. I think the education system is, is, is very old fashioned when it comes to that. Um, and I mean, even when I was in school, Section 28 ended, I think it was 2005. And they found that even by 2009, 50% of schools weren't even aware that that law had gone away. Um, so that's 50% of schools in the country that even by 2008 weren't talking to children about LGBTQ relationships, sex or anything like that. Um, and, you know, it, it just didn't come up. It, it was a conversation that didn't exist. And while they would direct, and I, I went to one when I was, I think I was about, 16 I went to this LGBTQ group that I'd seen like advertised across my school um and there was one held like a couple of towns away and I got like three buses in the pouring rain and it was literally it was like AA but for young <laughs> young LGBT people we all just like sit on a chair and announce that we liked people of the same gender and different genders and you know it was <laughs> It was all a bit depressing, if I'm being totally honest. You know, there was nothing like positive or uplifting about it. It wasn't like, oh, I finally kind of met a community of people. There's a lot of people that really didn't want to be LGBT and kind of weren't sure how to deal with it. Um, and kind of that was the response rather than kind of bringing forward any positive role models or kind of creating a situation where there would be kind of more positive conversations around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I my I was similar time I think when I was in school sort of having having the sex sex ed or like lack of that was there and it was absolutely same experience um where everyone was divided off and it, and it was you know really just about don't get pregnant don't get an STI that fear-based kind of this is everything that could happen it's so dangerous <clears throat> and I think it's so sad that it, as you said there were so many people sitting in that class who maybe <clears throat> didn't relate and wondered how they fit into this and then maybe that led to them feeling shamed or that something was wrong with them and that that group as you were saying that's it's such a you know rather than it being something to celebrate and help helping young people celebrate who they are and understand help them understand and process who they are and celebrate that it was that that fear-based um sort of all, all fear-based in in so many so many different ways and to be honest I'm not sure I don't know whether you are like what whether how much that has changed if it has at all or whether has there been positive changes when it comes to sex ed in schools I don't know enough young people at school at school right now yeah no I, I I assume things have got more positive um I live next door to a couple of teachers who've said that there is a big conversation on LGBTQ issues Um, And there's half the parents that think it hasn't gone far enough and half the parents that think it's already way too far. Um, So I guess it's the sense that it's 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 tough to please um, kind of a crowd of people around that. Um, I also think that Section 28 made made the idea of LGBTQ people something that isn't child friendly. which I think is inherently the biggest legacy of Section 28. Um, and for those of you that might be aware, Section 28 was a law that came in Thatcher's rule, um, which meant that no school or kind of educational environment could positively promote the idea of homosexuality. Um, so what that basically meant was you were never allowed to reference it in any kind of positive way. Um, and I think this idea still exists today. You know, We still think of LGBTQ people as something that isn't appropriate for children. Um, you know, if there's an LGBTQ character on a TV show, people are fine with it. If that TV show is aimed at children, there are even some LGBTQ people that suddenly feel a bit uncomfortable with it. Um, and it always really surprises me 
that we don't question our bias around that enough because we, we basically created a system that we grew up in that said LGBTQ people aren't for children. We could have a lovely family film where two straight people kiss, but if two LGBTQ people did that, it was, it was unsettling um, and it was almost promoting something. Um, and I, I think more people need to question their own bias when it comes to the idea of children's media and how we present positive LGBTQ role models um, and whether we really do even nowadays treat them the same as we would with a straight person. Mm, mm, yeah, I think that is really a really important sort of reflective like aspect for so many people. Ultimately, because we were all grown, we well, depending on the age of the listeners, but I know with our, our sort of listener demographic, we grew up under um, that section 28 or when when that wasn't being informed. So actually there are without maybe you know, no, without you realizing there's gaps in that knowledge that are probably feeding maybe unconscious biases like that. And I think having that, having conversations like this or, or just kind of being like, hang on a second, like why, if that was a straight person or if this was, I was applying that to, um, or if I were to swap that around in my head, would I still think the same thing? Am I maybe holding on to these? What do you think, like what, what could like help people maybe approach that within themselves, do you think? I think it's really interesting. I think Jojo Siwa coming out, ironically, was actually um, a really, really interesting point. I know that she received some quite negative attention, but I also think that that threw into the spotlight um, kind of why maybe she received that. Um, and it is because she is such a big influence to children. You know, if you ask most, I'd say three to 12 year olds in a the country, they will know who Jojo Siwa is. Um, and she's kind of this, multi very glittery child-friendly influencer I think she's about 18 now but she sort of presents almost a little bit younger and there's something um very like fun and kind of rainbow about her content um and she recently came out as uh I'm not sure what she came out as or how she identifies I'm just gonna say queer for now um and has a um partner of the same gender so um, she's obviously, you know, super, super happy. She's posted on Instagram um, relentlessly about her girlfriend. So I can only assume that they're in a very joyful um, relationship in the sort that you are 18 uh, when you kind of want to tell everyone about it all the time. Um, and I think that in some ways has been a really great moment for LGBTQ people because you, you've got someone who is this very child-friendly, child-centric person um, that's really kind of being, uh, that's really celebrating having a partner and um, really kind of enjoying the sort of moment of that. And yet also has this very clear children's persona. Um, and I think that's the really interesting part of it uh, because a lot of people were fine with her being LGBTQ. The issue was she represents and is a very clear um kind of influence on children and whether that will affect them or not. Um, and I always think it's funny in the way people use the word affect as if, um, you know, LGBTQ people sort of come in and influence your children to join us. Um, but yeah, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was a really, really interesting conversation. And um, there is um, a load of really interesting YouTubers that have done some, some really cool content on it. Um, yeah, no, really recommend it. And it's still, I'm sort of cringing almost like as hearing you say that because it's that again, it comes back to that fear, like how it seems, if for you and I, it seems so like 
absurd that you could think that an LGBTQ person just by existing is going to influence and, and, and change um, and affect you, the word that you use. Like young people, it, just, it seems so absurd, but the fact is that some people do believe that. And it rather than sort of, that, that isn't going to change unless it's addressed. And I think, yeah, having more role models, like whether, and that's the brilliant thing I think about influencers and that, that young people have access that they didn't when we were younger, maybe they did. And with certain online forum, forums and stuff, but not as easily accessible, I think to people's whole lives, which actually a huge positive of that is exactly as, as you're saying there that young people now can maybe find role models who do they can relate to and realize oh okay no it isn't you know that the, there are people like me and that's how I can understand myself more um how do you think that you know that would have affected you at school or like the difference then if you'd had that at school rather than you having to get three buses across you know three different towns like how do you think that would have helped to have someone like that and how would that have changed your experience I mean for me personally I feel like my experience I guess of of coming out was overwhelmingly positive in the sense that I grew up in a very LGBTQ friendly household. My mum's best friends are um, a gay male couple and I grew up with them my whole life so never really understood <laughs> homophobia with other people. Um, I always found it a, a little bit odd anyway um, and I, I, I suppose that's probably because of my proximity to it. Um, I think if I didn't have that maybe it would have been a different story. Um, so I definitely had like positive influences there um, and I also grew up with parents that were kind of like you know no matter who you like it, it doesn't matter it's, it's completely up to you um, there are a couple of my friends that I didn't tell for years um, only because I knew how they sort of were and and their understanding of LGBTQ kind of the community was limited and I honestly didn't think they'd understand <laughs> Um, so I just didn't bother with I'd say there was there was at least three friends that I just never really bothered kind of coming out to because I I didn't really want their reaction um I didn't really kind of want to take that on but I think had we all had kind of that same baseline education maybe that would have been different um and certainly for people that were closeted for a lot longer than I was I think again that would have been really different um, to have like a more positive experience of kind of coming out or at least have better role models or kind of topics to discuss because you know we did a PSHE class where we debated gay marriage and um, you know we were split into two teams and I had to argue with someone why gay marriage doesn't mean that he should be able to marry a goat like <laughs> it, it it's a bit depressing to think that you're having to like argue for at the time your own existence as well um, and especially when you haven't kind of firmed up the idea in your head yet um, and it suddenly becomes very apparent that there are quite a few people that really don't like you um, for something that essentially you have no real influence or impact on. Mm, yeah, I, 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 I can't imagine because it, it wasn't my experience, but I think it, that, it, as you said, that time of self-discovery, which be, I mean, t being a teenager is hard in any <laughs> in any experience but to then feel like you when you're trying to understand who you are and process that in yourself that actually then this part of you that you 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 know is there or you um you know maybe haven't had the opportunity to grow into or explore and uh, yet isn't welcomed or is or even or worse I mean that's sugarcoating isn't it if it depending on what you've been exposed to or you hit comments or the media or debates and, and all of those sort of things it's so it, I think it's so important that 
that change happens in the classroom to welcome those conversations in a non-biased way and that starts I think loops back to that the, the what you were saying in terms of not separating out making the education um, nuanced making it to talking to the sexual education in all genders or people who don't identify as either and not putting it into boxes plus just the benefit of having as you're saying like <laughs> the um you know men understanding what it's like to have to menstruate and for, so they um, everyone understands what it's like to have a period not just people who have periods mm-hmm. that would, i mean benefit yeah, benefit everyone's life all of those sort yeah, no, definitely. um yeah i think it's i just think it's odd i guess um that you kind of wouldn't direct that conversation at everyone absolutely absolutely i hope i hope it's changed i mean after doing this series of of the, the podcast and like talking about this i'm like i really must i think the curious companies to go into to make sure this is changing in school i need to touch base to see what it's like and, and if not i know there's some amazing um kind of now like projects and companies that are going in and i think it would just yeah just sort of see where that is because it's come up so often so all the different things in this season about um yeah what we, we wish we'd learn in school that now i'm sort of <laughs> finishing this season thinking I'm like oh, what is it like now i need to i need to know i don't know enough young people at school so i've got that's my homework after this season so moving on there to your to your final point here and i love that that we're kind of covering a lot of points here and i know this is around around finance finances and what you wish you'd you'd learn around kind of managing personal finances yeah so i think um the education around finances at schools again i don't know whether this has changed now is essentially non-existent um I, I think it's it it's odd because I think um I'm not necessarily one of those person uh one of those people that thinks that all children should understand APRs and that side of things but I think it's more to do with the idea of managing money less so than kind of understanding tricky financial terminology I think that's something that around university and you know towards the end of high school parents should be encouraging that conversation um but I do think in terms of a kind of school's responsibility to kind of have that conversation about the value of money because I think up until about the age of 17 I'd even go ahead to say I think your understanding of money is intrinsically just linked to your background um it's rare that you'll have a really good and vast understanding of money and kind of global numbers and I remember being disappointed once like I asked my mum sometime when I was like six or something like are we billionaires and she was like <laughs> no and like that realization that I had no idea how much kind of wealth we had was like an odd one um but I think again like it's tricky because I got myself into debt when I first went into London um, and I think some of that is probably because I didn't go to university. I moved out to France and lived in France. And um, while I was out there, your accommodation and your food is all paid for and so is your bills. Um, and you kind of get like a tiny bit of pocket money on top of that. Um, so I didn't really have to manage money in that sense until I was in my 20s. Um, and by the time I moved to London, I'd say my financial education was so limited. that I was like, sure, a credit card. Um, and then I worked in some like fairly unstable jobs as most kind of young writers and creative people end up having to do where it was, okay, sorry guys, no one's going to get paid this week. It's actually going to get, you're actually going to get paid in a month. Um, 
so I, I realized at that point other people had parents that could bail them out or they had savings um, and I had neither of those things so I took out a loan to cover that and then a loan to cover that and then a credit card to cover that and a balance transfer and you can see where this is going um, and kind of like I got myself into a lot of debt and I think part of that was a lack of financial education overpriced accommodation and also, I think I've like recently written about this at the Cosmo, but this kind of idea that sometimes we shop more when we're sad, this kind of need to almost fill a void. Um, but I, I think a lack of financial education is often to blame. You know, I've said this before, but um, who who has ever said like, oh, no, I had too much education on this particular topic? Um, I, I don't think we can kind of give young people enough education on kind of how to avoid debt, how to make better decisions, the places that you should be going and kind of the structure of, of how to kind of explore your options, especially when your parents can't bail you out. Because I, I honestly think that the world is kind of divided between people that are like, I'm not getting paid for a month, but I can call my dad and I'm not getting paid for a month. So how will I be able to pay my bills? Um, and I think especially for the kind of more last category there needs to be a lot more education on like okay so now we're going into plan b what's plan b mm. Mm, yeah absolutely and I, I think i don't remember any education around money at school i don't think did was there ever when we were i don't think there was i mean maybe taxes were mentioned but you were you were told you knew they existed but you weren't you didn't understand what they were and I think even still there's many adults that still don't understand you know it's something you complain about but actually you don't understand how intrinsic they are and that's why we we have that you know the incredible NHS and we need it to have like it's when you understand it you're like okay right that's that's great but exactly as you said that that disparity between those who don't have a plan b unless they create it for themselves and and because as you said it, it what that the lack of education there is reinforcing is that when you don't have another option and your only option is to get a payday loan and then another loan to cover that loan as you were saying is sort of similarly similar to your experience you haven't got another option and I think that gets people into such tricky situations and be that now especially during the pandemic and I don't know any of the stats on this but when people have been maybe emotionally shopping or maybe things have been stressful or they've lost their job during the last year and you go online and you see it now and you have is it Klarna that all those those you know multiple pay know, pay and yeah the, the and I think that must be really it can be so impactful and not understanding, I think, the impact that getting into debt can have can have on you. Is that something you experienced in terms of credit rating and late, late, later in life? Was that something that you understood when you were younger or um, and, and how? I feel like how... in my early 20s, I definitely had an understanding that this was going to fuck me over. Um, am I allowed to say fuck? Yeah, 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 yeah. no worries. <laughs> yeah, no, I, had, I definitely had an understanding that this was going to fuck me over. In terms of how much it was going to fuck me over, I wasn't completely aware. Um, Beth Ashley, who obviously, you know, um, did a really interesting investigation on kind of CCJs and the impact that they've had on people. Um, and as well for a few articles, I've done um, some research on kind of the wider implications of depression on um, debt and kind of how that affects people long term. And I think it is, it's these really tricky conversations to say to a new partner, you know, we're looking to rent a place together. Oh, by the way, it might have to be in your name because you've got a CCJ. Um, I mean, touch wood, I was lucky enough to not get one. Um, 
but you know I did have a really really bad credit score in fact it's only last year that it's gone to good from very poor um and I, I don't think people realize how long it takes to fix a mistake that you make financially um and kind of how long that follows you around for how long you kind of have to keep looking at um, your options are going back to the drawing board with it because I, I certainly didn't realize the impact it would have on me mm. and I think well, like it's sometimes it's as you as you experience you know you, you it's gonna perhaps perhaps be bad maybe not know it quite as bad but sometimes you don't have a choice and for those people in those times like where you've got rent to pay you've got mouths to feed you've got um, rent um, bills to pay as well how what do you think now, especially with your experience, like what do you think would be helpful to know? What do you wish you had done differently or knew back then? So again, I, I don't think it's necessarily about teaching children financial terminology. I think it's the basics of kind of budgeting and preparing to enter a rental market that is inherently quite terrible. You know, you will pay an insane amount of money for rent. You, especially if you're an London, you will have a landlord that will not be flexible um and you will inevitably end up in debt if you don't kind of have a job that earns over twenty-two thousand pounds a year um and that's kind of the basics and yet if you think about when uh we were 18 the starting salary for a job was 17 to eighteen thousand. given the insane amount of inflation why is it that today's 18 year olds are also starting on 17 to eighteen thousand? You know, if we calculate the kind of, and I mean, I'm not an economist, but I think it's something like 9.4% inflation. So taking that into account, the starting salary should be more like 25. You know, what? why are they why are they being shafted so much? And not only that, we were too. Again, when you even looking at 1999, I think it was, 18K was still a starting salary. You know, it's because the lowest paid in the UK have remained stagnant. Um and I, I think it's worth having some education around that to say that going into these jobs, there will be a really poor starting salary. So the likelihood is for most young people, you're going to need to take on a certain amount of debt to be able to go through it, whether that is education debt. So you're, you're going to university to be able to get a job that allows you to jump through that or you'll need to live at home. Um, for longer you know you won't be able to have your independence as, as quickly as you want it and most most 18 year olds have already figured this out for themselves um, but since nothing's being done about it I guess there needs to be a bigger conversation about it oh sorry it gets me really angry <laughs> <laughs> oh I know I know and it, it is really important though and I and as you said I it, that is a could be a whole other and very much needed conversation and I think that goes beyond the sort of individual but learning the practical ways of, of budgeting as a starting point to know that like whilst we're waiting and hopefully taking action and having those conversations with whoever whomever it is that we need to to make those societal kind of changes to the living wage and things like that looking at what you can do in terms of the, the budgeting and do you know what, actually as you were talking earlier there's something I, I um, thought of which from when I think we were working together and seeing on your social that you actually have inspired me to start doing it again, which I've not done since I was probably a teenager or maybe even younger getting sort of one pound a week pocket money is to save for things that I want rather than sort of seeing something, either see something that I want and be like, no, that's too expensive or like feeling like I am lacking something if I want to want 
you know, a £400 designer dress and then sort of think, well, that's not for me or that's too expensive. And then you end up finding the £30 cheaper version, which is a whole, again, not the way and trying to be more sustainable and not go for fast fashion. Like you definitely inspired me with um, the kind of to, to actually change that way of thinking that inst like that instant need for things and being like, you know what? No, I'm going to save up for that better quality or that, that experience that I want. It might take longer, but I'm going to budget away that 30 pounds, 50 pounds a week, a month, and just sort of save up for that. And that is something actually that you, you instilled in me. Yeah. I think I, I, um, Quick and fast fashion was one of the best things I ever did for my bank account. Um, I used to be like a serial like shopper of like absolute shite. Um, like I buy like loads of cheap shitty clothes all the time. And I credit Aja Barber for like a, a large part of her influence on me. Um, but I, I kind of started to educate myself more about fast fashion. I watched the Stacey Dooley documentary. And the more I learned about it, the more I didn't really want to be involved in the industry. And I turned around to my boyfriend at the end of this Stacey Dooley documentary and said, that's it, I'm never buying fast fashion again. And he was like, okay, well, we'll see how that goes. And that was three years ago. Um, and I stopped buying fast fashion. For the first six months, I didn't buy anything. Um, so I just basically threw the sort of 50 quid that I'd spend on like, I don't know, shit dress um, into a pot. And with it, I bought my first kind of fancy purchase. Um, I bought like a House of Sunny um, jumper that I live in uh even now like I, I live in it all the time um and I also bought like an insanely expensive vintage dress that I'd really wanted um and now I do that I, I shop every sort of three months um rather than kind of every month because if, if we actually really critically think about how often we buy clothes average person shops every sort of two to three weeks which sounds a lot but when you actually look at kind of the cycle of your month that's probably how much you do shop um so changing that to three months and having things on my wish list for a bit longer um, really meant that I could like invest more money in better clothes um, and also support independent makers. Like I, I really love like handmade clothes. I love this idea of buying from people that have kind of um, bought the material and really have a completely transparent view of their own supply chain. Um, so buying fast, like buying sort of sustainable clothes and quick fast fashion was a really, really great way for me to save money. Um, but also to kind of change the way that I consume in general, you know, I used to buy stuff a lot, not necessarily because I needed it, but more because of like a knee-jerk reaction of like needing stuff um, rather than kind of like I need X, Y, Z specific item, more just I need stuff um, because I feel a bit better when something nice comes through the post. Um, and shifting away from that and more into kind of a slightly more mindful approach to shopping and purchasing and consuming and acknowledging that there are things I might want to buy and I only kind of shop with brands that kind of align with my values now um don't get me wrong I still love Depop and eBay are my two favorites and I, I bought secondhand fast fashion um simply because I'm kind of of the mind that it will end up in a landfill anyway <laughs> so I'd rather own it um but I, I won't kind of buy fast fashion anymore from uh, kind of direct from websites. Yeah, buying it new. And I think you touched upon something that's so important is that often what we're buying is we're fulfilling, trying to fulfill a gap in how we feel and we're trying to feel something when we buy it. It's not actually that we want it. And I think the saving, it's really interesting that you say that, that you actually are spending less now that you're buying uh, more, probably more expensive Bes like, not bespoke but handmade items whereas actually it, it, that 
in the long run is going to save you money. And I think using apps like things like Monzo and uh, is it Starling and places like that, where you can create those little pots, the money pots, the different pots and just saving a little bit, even if it's just a few pounds here and there, that can soon add up to a hundred pounds, which may be that when you look at that, spending that on one small item, you might deem that expensive. Um, I think that is, is really, really helpful. Do you have any, what's your way of budgeting? Do you have any apps or anything like that that you use that you'd recommend? Uh, so not really, I think because I'm self-employed, my, um, finances are very different to how most people's look. Um, so I think the average person probably gets paid one day a month and then they split up their money. Um, because I get payments every few days sort of thing and they come through at like odd times. And sometimes I'm expecting a grand and I don't get it until a month later. Um, it, it can be a bit tricky to budget. So I'm really lucky where I'm at the point where I've kind of always saved a month ahead and I pay myself a month in lieu. So it's, it's a bit of a funny system. Um, but basically money that I spend on me goes into my bank account, money that doesn't get spent on me goes into my business account and comes out from there. Um, so that structure works well for me, but I think there's definitely different ways of finding something that works for you. Yeah, as you said, finding something, finding ways that work for you, whether that if you're freelancing, it's slightly different and, and knowing which day. Um, whereas if you're getting paid on the same day, I think it is it is very different. But no, thank, I think that's helpful for anyone who is freelance to think about that, even just paying yourself a month in advance. It's sim that it sounds really simple once you know it, but actually, because we, we were never taught it, and if you were never taught it or heard someone talk about it, if you don't know anyone who's freelance, actually little snippets like that are really, really helpful. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I do think it's, um, it's useful. Um, the kind of more, more time you spend thinking about your kind of money in a slightly more mindful way. Um, I don't mean that as in kind of weird visualizations of being a millionaire. I, I mean more in the sense of being like, right. So this month I've got this kind of, do I actually want this? Do I need this? Am I going to save it? If I'm saving it, what am I kind of saving for? What kind of goal is that? Um, I think it can really help reframe your relationship with money. Mm, yeah, I, I, that's such a good point that I think that you make there in terms of that looking at your, your relationship with it and the why. I think get that sitting with whether you what you're spending something on as well and also re um, reconnecting with why you want how you want to feel with it. I think that's so, that is so, so, so important. And I mean, the Curious Club, it's something that we have got. We've got lots of things in the pipeline around this education piece more and, and workshops and classes around the practical side of budgeting, managing money. What does it mean to invest? All of that stuff. So do stay tuned. It is going to be coming your way very soon. Um, to close off, a question that I like to ask everyone is who has been your favourite teacher and why? So I don't think I necessarily had a favourite teacher, um, but I do have a favorite kind of mental um so when I worked at Manchester City Council I was really really lucky I had I worked with a fabulous copywriter called Mike who um was kind of in his 60s then I'd say two days a week off gardening and only worked sort of the other three um and he lived very much the lifestyle that I aspire to live um and his kind of unadulterated love for writing was something that just it, it, it just kind of sparked this like enthusiasm in me in a way that no one else has ever been able to. Um, and I think when you work with people who truly like love so much what they do and it kind of pours out of them, um, there's something so joyful about that that it's, it's really hard um, to kind of not be infected by it, if you know what I mean. 
Mm, uh, yeah, I totally agree the, with the passion. When someone is so clearly passionate about something, it's infectious. Even you talking about it, I was like smiling, being like, yeah, I can feel it, feel it there. And that, that's so lovely to have someone like that who sparked that. Yeah, it was amazing. We'd sit there and I remember we spent half a day on one sentence. And I was like, this is an insane amount of time to spend on one sentence. We had post-it notes of the sort of 20 words that made up this sentence that we'd scribble out and rewrite and and reframe and rewrite again and we stayed there till I think it was maybe 8 p.m at night rewriting and rewriting and rewriting um until we got this sentence right and it, it was quite an important sentence in the context um did kind of create this really joyful um love of kind of the written word but yeah no I I absolutely absolutely loved um kind of doing um and working with him he was he was a fabulous influence on me and he remains kind of one of the um people that inspire me the most <laughs> even now I love that I love hearing about everyone's different person and it's it's not it's so often it's not like a, a teacher but it's someone as you said different mentors and, and I'm loving it I'm loving hearing it also another question is the the school dinners your favorite did you have one something nostalgic here maybe you were repulsed maybe you loved them but what what did you, what were your, what were your feelings on school dinners? Um, oh, I didn't eat school dinners. I had packed lunches. Uh, my mum always thought school dinners were a bit of a waste of money when we could have crisps from home. Couldn't wow. have crisps at all. Um, but I, my favourite school dinner was, um, you know, that like sort of shitty tray baked cake that's like vanilla and it comes with custard. Oh, and yeah. the custard's like um, startlingly cold and the cake's like scalding fire level hot. Yeah. Um, it was like my favorite thing ever and there's nothing more I love than like those kind of school tray bake cakes I think they're fabulous oh. I, like, honestly, I would eat an entire one now if I could oh god yeah I totally would and also actually do it like it, a packed lunch like a school packed lunch in a lunchbox I miss that like I miss the excitement of and I was really envious because I wanted to have packed lunch every day of and because I really loved my um I everyone that they can't have because I remember <laughs> so my friends had school dinners and desperate to have packed lunches <laughs> I remember being desperate to have school dinners I'd be like they get to eat pizza and I've got like carrot sticks <laughs> it's just like oh god <laughs> did girl. your mum pack you did your mum pack you away with like a healthy school uh, a healthy packed lunch ish I'd say it depended on the day of the week if she was working it was slightly more limited <laughs> but um I think me and my sister started making our own um really early on and it was like one of my favorite things because I got to pick the bits that went in them um and there's something very nice about being able to plan your own meal <laughs> have slightly more control over it where can people um where can people find you oh I'm on Instagram um I can't remember my handle now because I changed it recently. Um, it's my name, but there's some dots in it. And maybe you'll put it in the link to the podcast. Oh, I will, I, yeah, no worries <laughs> at all. I shall link your website, your social media, all in the description. Oh, I have a website and it's um, studio-sonder.co.uk. Basically, all of the things I wanted, but I already taken. So all of them have like an inordinate amount of like dots and dashes that make things really complicated when you're kind of sharing them. I did a panel the other week where they asked about my website and I was like, okay, so it's www.studio and then the dash and then the, <laughs> and yeah, I, um, basically it's a massive pain. I should have really had a more interesting name. <laughs> no it's great and it's in the links are there i'd link to people directly there so thank you so much for chatting to me today it's been lovely oh no problem it's always nice to catch up and thanks so much for listening 
If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure that you're subscribed and please do leave a rating and review because it really helps other people discover the podcast. Until next time, stay curious.